I'm going to speak this morning on how to respond to a prodigal in the family. And if you don't have a prodigal in the family, uh, praise God for that. Maybe your kids are, are too young uh, or all your kids are serving the Lord. That's fantastic. Uh, but I also want to look at it from what if, what if you are a prodigal? Uh, is there anyone here, don't raise your hand, but is there anyone here who says, I have backslidden uh, in my Christian life. I haven't always been what I should have been spiritually. And uh, we're going to look at it from both perspectives. And we're going to read two lengthy passages of Scripture this morning. And if you're in Ezekiel 18, I actually want to read the whole chapter. <clears throat> the Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he's not eaten on the, his, on the mountains, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity, if he's not oppressed anyone, but he has restored to the debtor his pledge, has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, if he's not exacted usury nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true judgment between man and man, if he's walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just. He shall surely live, says the Lord God. If he begets a son who is a robber or a shedder of blood, who does any of these things and does none of those duties, but has eaten on the mountains or defiled his neighbor's wife, if he has oppressed the poor and needy, robbed by violence, nor restored the pledge, lifted his eyes to idols or committed abomination, if he's exacted usury or taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. If, however, he begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers but does not do likewise, who has not eaten on the mountain nor lifted his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, has not oppressed anyone nor withheld a pledge, nor robbed by violence but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, who has withdrawn his hand from the poor and has received usury or increase, but has executed my judgments and walked in my statutes. He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right, and has kept all my statutes and observed them, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he's committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions which he's committed shall be remembered against him. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God? And not that he should turn from his ways and live. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed. Because of them he shall die. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies in it, 
It is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive. Because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says the way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, is it not fair? My ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that your iniquity will not be your your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you've committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Let's open order prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, I just pray that for anyone in the room who maybe has a an adult son or daughter who is walking away from you, I pray this would be a great encouragement. Uh, for those in the church who know of someone who has a son or daughter who's struggling, I pray that this would uh, be instructive for them and how to be a help. For those who maybe are backslidden this morning, they're not where they once were. They are the prodigal this morning. God, I pray that they would take this passage and as it challenges us, that they would turn and live, that they would repent. God, they would recommend that they would recognize what an incredible Heavenly Father you are. God, bless our time in your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Probably a lot of you know a very famous football quarterback called Aaron Rodgers. Uh, and Aaron Rodgers actually grew up in a Christian home. January 23rd, 2020, he did a podcast interview, and this is what he said, speaking about church and religion. I don't think it's very welcoming. Religion can be a crutch. It can be something that people have to have to make themselves feel better. And because it's sort of binary, it's us and them. It's saved and unsaved. It's heaven and hell. It's enlightened and heathen. It's holy and righteous. It's sinner and filthy. I think that makes a lot of people feel better about themselves. I don't know how you can believe in a God who wants to condemn most of the planet to a fiery hell. Like what type of loving, sensitive, omnipresent, omnipotent being wants to condemn most of his beautiful creation to a fiery hell at the end of all this? End of quote, Aaron Rodgers. He was born in Chico, California. Rogers was raised by Christians, Darla and Edward. He was forced to attend church growing up and took part in Young Life, a religious organization for youth. He began questioning religion as he grew older, however. When Aaron Rodgers hit college, he didn't feel a connection with any religious organizations and began to quote-unquote question things. He also met friends with different beliefs that he enjoyed learning about. Ultimately, he realized that rules, regulations, and binary systems don't resonate with him. It's been a fun path to a different type of spirituality, which to me has been more meaningful, Roger says. During a conversation with his girlfriend at the time, Danica Patrick, on pretty intense podcast, Roger said he was having trouble with religion growing up. He says, and I quote, most people that I knew, church was just, you just had to go. I don't know how you can believe in a God who would condemn everyone to hell. And of course, we all know if you're a believer, not everyone's condemned to hell. We all have a choice. We talked about that in my first... It's a choice. According to an insider with People magazine, Roger's comments have not resonated well with his family. They were dismayed, says the insider. The family is very dedicated to their Christian faith. To them, his comments are basically a slap in the face to the fundamentals of who they are. It's basically him turning his back on everything they have taught him. Roger's lack of a relationship with his family is well known. The 36-year-old has been estranged from his family for several years now. 
Different sides say different things, but the reality of the matter is the famed quarterback does not get along with his family. The feeling is that Aaron has really turned his back on them, says the people insider. There's clearly a lot more to it, but that's how he is perceived by his family. His comments are very hurtful to the family. They have these times when things start to thaw out, but then something like this happens, and it's back to square one. It's sad. If you have an adult child that's walked away from the Lord, you probably aren't this public. Aaron Rodgers is a pretty public figure. Lots of people read this. And if you were a Christian parents, that'd be pretty hard, right? Pretty hurtful. Everyone at church coming up, hey, did you see the people article? Yeah, I saw that. I mean, that'd be a very difficult thing to handle. And I I would challenge you that as I've traveled America, I found this to be a common problem. A lot of discouraged parents who have one child that walked away from the Lord. And this passage in Ezekiel is very, very powerful. Obviously, the Rogers family has a son like this. What if you have a son like this? Or what if you know someone like this? Well, I want to pair this. Let's, let's keep your finger here. But Luke 15, and I, just for sake of time, we've got to end at 10 this morning, um, is the story, the famous story of the prodigal son. It's really a three-part on the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Uh, the most famous is the lost son. And if you know the story, verse 11, he says, A certain man had two sons, the younger of them, said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. He says, I want my inheritance. What has to happen before you get an inheritance? I know it's Sunday morning. I can tell some of you had stayed up too late last night. <laughs> I'm kidding. You know, someone has to die, right? That's, that's what has to happen before you get inheritance. Someone has to die. So you know what he's saying to dad? Dad, I wish you were what? Yes, you were dead. In the shame culture, you would never do that. That would, You would never shame your family publicly. In fact, if you did that, if you shamed your dad publicly, they would have a funeral. They would take an empty coffin. They would literally bury it, put a, a tombstone up, and everyone in the village would know he's, he's done. He's cut off from his family. He can never come home. That's why in the text, multiple times you read, this my son was dead and is alive again. Because in a shame culture, you embarrass your father like that publicly, you're done. And as Jesus is telling this story, everyone knows what's going to happen. No dad would do that. You would not shame dad publicly and say, Dad, I wish you were dead. And dad says, okay, I'll give you an inheritance. But in the story, that's what happens. And if you know the story, he wasted on riotous living. By the way, in this story, the father is a picture of a heavenly father. Dad, I wish you were dead. He goes to a far country, which meant a Gentile country. He didn't want to be around anyone that knew him. He was tired of rules. He was tired of people asking what he was doing. He said, I just want to do my own thing. And he goes to a far country and he blows through an entire inheritance. And the Bible says he goes broke at the beginning of a famine. <laughs> that is not the time you want to go broke, right? I mean, that's really bad timing. And let's just pick it up in verse 14. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen in that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. I don't know what you think the worst job is, uh, but for a Jewish boy, the worst job you could possibly have is to be a, a pig farmer. I mean, I work with teenagers all the time. I would say, hey, like, what's the worst job you can have? And they're like, McDonald's. <laughs> If they grew up on a farm spreading manure, I mean, you know, you get all these different ideas of what the worst job is, but this is the worst job. And, and he doesn't even make it on pig's food. In verse uh, 15, he went and joined himself to sit in that country and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. 
And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. What's your name? Jenna? Jenna? You can tell me that I, I could live a long time without any food. But if I was literally starving to death, Jenna, would you help me out? <laughs> wow. <laughs> she said, yes, hopefully. <laughs> That's two of us, Jenna. <laughs> But Jenna has never met me. And you know what? But Jenna's a nice person. And Jenna says, hopefully I'd help you out. <laughs> you are starving to death. I've never met you before. But Dr. Jim, if you, I hopefully, I think I might maybe possibly help you out. Usually I get a better answer than that, Jenna. So that's, uh, but most of us know a Jenna, right? Most of us know nice people. Most of us, if you were literally starving to death and you were in big trouble, most of us know a Jenna who would say, I don't even know you, but I'm nice. And I, I hopefully I might possibly help you out, all right? So I think Jenna would, right? I think Jenna would help me out. Doesn't even know me, but if she thought, you're literally starving to death, I'll help you. This guy has blown through an inheritance. He's having all kinds of parties. He doesn't even know a Jenna. He doesn't know one nice person. The text says no one gave him anything. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough in the spirit and I perish with hunger? We all understand what the word perish means? Die. It means he's starving to death. He's not making, there's not enough nutrients for a human on the food he's giving the pigs. The pigs can live on it, but a human can't. And he's starving to death. He's perishing with hunger. Verse 18, I'll rise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. And no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. When I speak to teenagers, I always say to teens, why does it take us so much for us to come to ourselves? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I talk, how many of you have ever backslidden? How many of you have said, I want to do what I want to do? I, I don't want to go to church. I don't want anyone judging me. I don't want anyone questioning me. I know it's wrong, but this is what I want to do. I've been there. And I just like, I don't want, I don't want Pastor Dennis to come talk to me. I already know it's not what I should be doing, but I want to do it. And when I was a pastor, I'd have people, I'd go and talk to them and say, Pastor Jim, I know you love me, but I'm going to do this anyway. Well, that's this guy. And it's a true statement. He shamed his father publicly. He's done everything wrong. But he says, you know what? I know my dad. I know my Heavenly Father. I know that He's a good man. He's he's like Jenna. My dad's like Jenna. And my dad, if he knows you're starving to death, I know my dad would help me out. I need to go home. And he says in verse 19, true statement, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He rose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. What does that tell you? Why do you think dad saw him a great way off? What does that tell you about dad's been doing? Dad's looking for him. By the way, if you have a prodigal, you have a son or daughter that's walking away from the Lord, you need to have this attitude. Always looking for them to come home. You don't give up on them. You don't write them off. You keep praying. And you just say, hey, someday God could bring them home. And for whatever, however long this period, we don't know how long, but it's been quite a while. He's blown through an inheritance. This is, this is probably six months to two years. Dad hasn't seen him in a long time. But guess what this is telling you? Every day, Dad goes out. Hey, maybe today 
Maybe today is the day my son comes home. And while he sees him a long way off, he recognizes him. Now he looks a lot different. He's definitely a lot skinnier. He has no shoes on his feet. I mean, he stinks. If you've ever worked with pigs, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) I'm in farm country. There's different manure smells, right? I grew up on a farm. Cow's manure is much nicer than pig manure, if you've ever been around pig manure. If you have a pig farm, everyone wants to live upwind of the pig farm. And so, I mean, this kid looks rough. Uh, we were up in Canada. I sent Our son went two years to Maranatha and played football. And uh, when my wife isn't a big sports person, but she loved our son. And so I would be watching the game. And when Tim got in the game, she'd say, hey, you know, call me when Tim gets in. And I would call him. And, you know, Christian colleges, it's not like, and there's a big difference between NCAA and NCCAA. <laughs> so when you watch NCCAA, the people look this big on the screen. <laughs> I mean, you could hardly see the number, but you know what? We knew our son. I didn't have to point him out. John could look over my shoulder and go, oh, there's Tim. You know the way your kids walk. You, you know their mannerisms. I mean, you, you just know your kids. And, and you could just, even though they're this small, you can go, oh, that's Tim. That's my son. And he sees him a long way off, and he did two things that old men, even old men don't do today very much. Number one, he runs. Old men don't run. And secondly, in their culture... <laughs> In their culture, they had to wear robes. And so in order to run, they had to take the bottom of the robe, tuck it into the sash so they could run. And it was shameful for old men to show their skin. That was something in their culture they didn't do. You know what this dad said? I don't care what anybody thinks. That's my boy. You know how often we get so distracted worrying about what everyone else thinks? And that this father said, I don't care what anyone else thinks. That's my boy. He tucks it up. He runs to meet him. And as we come back to the text, he ran, fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and no longer worthy to be called your son. We call this repentance. This is someone who says, Dad, I got it wrong. Dad, I, I should have never said I wish you were dead. And Dad, I know I don't even deserve to come home. I mean, Dad, I have really messed up. And dad, I I don't deserve to be a son, but dad, could I at least work here? I want to live. (laughs) Could Could I just be an employee? And I love verse 22, but everything the son said in verse 21 is true. Have any of you ever prayed through Psalm 51 where David repents? Has anyone besides Jim Tilson sinned and you knew it was wrong going in? I mean, you knew it was wrong. And you did it anyway. And then you come to God in prayer and say, Oh God, I knew better. I knew that was wrong. God, would you please forgive me? I'm not even worthy to be a pastor. God, how could you even let me be a president of a Christian college? And God grabs me. This is what you love about grace, folks. You'll never out, you'll never out sin God's grace. And that's what you love about but. (laughs) Verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put put it on him. A ring in his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You know what dad said? (laughs) Let's have a party. (laughs) And they were having a party. Everyone's excited. And the older brother's out in the field. And the servant runs out and says, hey, did you hear the good news? Your brother's home. And he is ticked. 
And he won't even come in. Now, I grew up with an old school dad. If this had been me, my dad would say, suck it up, buttercup. There's no way my dad would come out and get me. But this father goes out and he's basically like, what's your problem? Like your son's... And he won't even call him his brother. I mean, look at the text. Verse 28. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandments at any time, yet you never gave me a young goat that might marry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours come, he won't even call him his brother. I mean, he's ticked. By the way, if you read at the beginning, it says he gave them the inheritance. It wasn't just the younger brother who got the inheritance. The older brother got it at the same time. That's why dad says, what are you talking about? Everything else is yours. I mean, you want to kill a goat? Kill a goat. That's not how we think of a party today. But that was a party back then, right? You can have a good time. Let's go kill a goat. (laughs) Which if you've ever been around goats, I can see why that'd be a party. But anyway. (laughs) But a dad says, you know what? If you want to kill a goat, go kill a goat. You want to have your friends over? Have your friends over. And you know what you learn in this text about the older brother? You can leave the father without leaving the farm. And I think there's a lot of people in church that don't have, they don't love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, but they go to church. And you can leave the father without leaving the farm. Did he love dad? He didn't love dad any more than the younger brother did. And and look at the father's response in verse 31. He said to him, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make Mary and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. Number one this morning, if you are a prodigal, you may be a hidden prodigal. You know, because the, the external prodigals are easy to see, right? I mean, they're totally rebellious. They don't care what anyone thinks. They're just going off the rails. And everybody in the church knows it. But I also think there's some older brothers in the church. You look really good. You come to church every Sunday, but you don't really love God. You don't read your Bible. You don't have a prayer life. You know, I toyed with I'm going to do something different, but if you look in Revelation, there's a lot of good things about the church, but the one problem is what? They left their first love. Man, they worked hard. They broke a sweat. They had discernment, but they didn't have love. And you go to 1 Corinthians 13, and he says, if you do all these wonderful things and have not love, it profits you nothing. If you, I love the last one. If you give your body to be burned and have not love. I mean, that's got to be the ultimate bummer, right? <laughs> you burn at the stake and you wake up in heaven and God goes, that was dumb. <laughs> I burned at the stake. Yeah, but you didn't love anybody. That was really stupid. It profited you nothing. Don't be the older brother. Don't be coming to church with no love for God. Isn't it weird that's a command? God doesn't have to command you for anything else you love. And I don't want to rob my morning message, so we're going to get there this morning. Let's Let's circle back now to Ezekiel 18. And if you have your notes... I think hopefully this will be helpful if you have a prodigal. Hopefully it will be helpful if you know someone who has a prodigal. And I think most people over time will fit those two categories. You'll either know someone or you'll have one. And uh, hopefully this will be helpful. Number one, if you have your notes, you are not responsible for their choices. If you have kids, unfortunately God gave our kids a free will. Isn't that a bummer as a parent? <laughs> Man, I would love to be my kid's Holy Spirit. I could really help them a lot, right? Unfortunately, God gave them a free will. I I can't make my kids get saved. Do you understand that this morning? There's not one parent in the room that can force your child to get saved. You can't do that. 
God gave them a free will. If your children get saved, you can influence, but you can't cause. You can influence your children, but you can't cause them. You can't force them to get saved. You can't force them to do right. No parent can do that. You can influence, and you should. But at the end of the day, it's their choice, whether they serve God or not, whether they get saved or not. And that's very clearly, if you're here in Ezekiel 18, what he starts off by saying, this, this is not going to be a proverb anymore. Parents have eaten sour grapes of children's teeth are set on edge. He gives three generations in this chapter. Dad does right, has a son. Son has no heart for God, does everything wrong. He has a son. Now it's grandson. Grandson chooses to do right, even though dad did everything wrong. I work at a Christian college. Our daughter-in-law is the most awesome. We're so happy she's in our family. But she grew up in Omaha in a broken home. Mom did drugs. Dad was an alcoholic. Raised by grandparents. Broken family. Got saved at camp. And paid her own way to come to Faith Baptist Bible College. I mean, unbelievable. Worked hard. No support. No help. I mean, if anyone had an excuse to do the wrong thing, it was her. And she chose to do the right thing and praise God my son was smart enough to marry her. <laughs> and and we don't have to share her. That's so awesome. <laughs> we get her for every holiday. You know what I mean? I, and we're praying for her family to get saved. But, I mean, she, she, we're the first family she's ever known. Never had a birthday party. Never had all the normal things a family would do. And she comes over and, man, we I mean, I call her my daughter. You know, I, I send her a text, hey, Kelly, I love you. Man, she'll send a note back, you know, just overwhelmed. And selfishly, I'm like, this is awesome. Because <laughs> my other kids have good parents, unfortunately. <laughs> we get them every other Christmas. But, uh, but if you had someone that had an excuse, she'd have an excuse, right? Why is it in the same family? I have three younger sisters. My parents got saved when I was five. Absolute real deal, my mom and dad. Often saw my dad reading his Bible. Uh, he was one of those guys that thought you should never get a new Bible. If he tore a page, you'd get scotch tape and tape it together. And just, I can tell you, he worked hard, and, but he read his Bible. My mom, incredible servant. And my youngest sister, when we first went up to Canada, went off the rails. And uh, ends up eloping with an unsaved guy. And my parents call me and say, Jim, can we get an annulment? <laughs> I said, Dad, that's a Catholic thing. You can't do that. <laughs> like if they're married, they'd already gone to Justice of the Peace. They got married. It was a total train wreck. Later on, my sister got saved. But I want to challenge you. My mom and dad, and I know this because they had the same rules for all four of us. I mean, we had this. they didn't treat her different. Uh, she wasn't... You know, some people say, well, she was the favorite or she's the... No, they treated us all the same and I know I lived in the same house. We were all born really close in age together. So whose fault is that? You know what? what is really hurtful? And I, let me just challenge you if you don't have a prodigal. Because some of you... And that, by the way, don't isn't that what you should pray for? Every parent in this room should pray, God, I want all my kids to get saved. I want all my kids to live for God. And God sometimes answers those prayers. And all your kids get saved and all of your kids live for God. You know what you can do? You can take credit for what God did. And you can say, you know why all our kids live for God? 
we were awesome parents. Man, if everyone was parenting the way we parent, all their kids, and then you can get really judgmental of someone that has a prodigal. You know what's wrong with that? Is you didn't save your kids. That was their choice. And when you start judging other people for the choices their kids made, I think God says, judge not lest you be what? Lest you be judged. You know how many churches I'm in that are very ungracious? By the way, if you ever go through this heartache, and it is a terrible heartache, if you ever go through this heartache, having people pile on is the worst thing that can happen. Your heart's already broken. You're already crushed that one of your kids that you've spent your whole life trying to get them to do the right thing, you're already crushed. Man, I, I've pastored long enough to hear a lot of stupid things people say. Had a lady that was in a car accident, got hit on the side of the car, she was pregnant, lost her child. And someone in the church said, is there any sin in your life? Don't raise your hand, but how many in the room think, man, that was a godly, gracious, that was a great comment. You know how often in churches stupid things like that get said? And someone is, she lost her baby. I mean, how hurtful, how she's already struggling. And have someone be like Job's three friends? Hey, Job, where's the sin in your life? If you take nothing from this, if you've never gone through this kind of grief, understand when people are grieving, they don't need your advice, they need your love. And too often we try and give good advice that's hurtful. Instead of saying, man, I just need to love you right now. Man, I am so sorry. Man, I can't even imagine what you're going through. But there are those of us who understand what it's like. I have three children of my own. My oldest went to a Christian college for a year and then went off the rails. And absolutely crushed us. Not crazy. I mean, we've, we've heard people that had other heartbreaks. We've heard some this week. And you know in your own church you've had someone who had a suicide. And as you go through those heartaches and you go through those heartbreaks, you understand, and I'm preaching Bible, I needed to learn this myself. The Bible says each person is individually responsible. My daughter-in-law had a choice to make. Every child has a choice to make. And so, and it's biblical. You are not responsible for their choices. You influence a child, but you don't cause. There's a law of individual responsibility. We see this here in Ezekiel 18, verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. In God's eyes, if you're in your notes, people are individuals. He treats them as such. Everyone will be responsible to God for their own conduct. Look over verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. If you have a prodigal, you will almost always feel guilt. You will be convinced. And you know what? Every one of us, is there any parent in the room that doesn't have something you wish you could do over? And and folks, God was the perfect parent. Did Adam and Eve disobey? Was that God's fault? When you and I choose to backslide, is that God's fault? Or is it our choice? It's our choice. And when when problems come in our life, and they all do, that's when people walk away from God. That's a choice you're making. Because Satan's a liar and a murderer, and he's going to whisper, Hey, God doesn't love you. 
God doesn't care. That's not true. It's a lie. Have in your notes. And again, I did not know that... I only found this out last night, so I had these notes already prepared. But suicide is caused by people who take a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Whatever's going on in their life at the time, they think that this is the only way out. And of course, that's the devil. And he's as real as, as God is. And he's always lying to us. Take your Bible and go to First Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. Often when you're a pastor, and I meet a lot of pastors who have a child who's struggling, and people go, one who rules his own house while having his children in submission without reverence, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Again, you're going to have to study this yourself, but I'm convinced this is talking about when a child is still in the home. In other words, if you have a a child that's living at home and they are completely, they're the child that's burning the church house down, (laughs) that's a problem. But once that child is out of your home, they're making their own choices. And God's very clear that while they're in your home, you're responsible, but when they're out, they're responsible. And if you come back to Ezekiel 18, which just for sake of time, we're going to just probably park here. I'll, I'll refer to some other verses, but let's just go back to Ezekiel 18. People often go to the verse, train up a child in the way he is go and he is old, they will not depart from it. Remember this morning, that's a principle, not a promise. That's the way the Proverbs, that's not a promise, that's a principle. Generally, this is true. Think of another proverb. A soft answer turns away wrath. Has anyone besides me found out that that is not a promise? <laughs> Someone is absolutely losing it on you and you go, please don't be many upset. <laughs> And they take it to another level and you're like, what happened to that proverb? A soft answer is supposed to... No, generally that's true. Generally, if you're nice like Jenna, you talk softly, they're going to be fine. But are you going to meet those crabby people with a temper problem? And no matter what you say and what you find out, generally a soft answer turns away wrath, but it's not a promise. Generally, you train up a child the way they should go and they will not depart from it. Principle, not a promise. Number one, you are not responsible for their choices. Number two in your notes, guard your heart. This is taken from uh, Counselor John Street. A, your severe disappointment over your adult child's denial of Christ must not lessen your love for them. Uh, go over to Luke chapter 6. I'm sorry, we will go away. Luke six thirty-two to 36. But if you love those who love you, what credit is it to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even your sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be the sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Is there anyone in the room that at one point in your life wasn't in that last sentence. You realize every one of us at some point was unthankful and evil and then God saved us by His amazing grace. Even when we said, God, I don't want you, He saw us a long way off looking for us. And when you finally had enough and you finally said, God, 
I need to get saved. I'm done doing it my way. I want to come home. God wraps his arms around you and says, hey, welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. Praise God for that mercy and grace. And if you have a son or daughter who's walking away from the Lord and they want nothing to do with you, you need to keep loving them like Christ loved us. Number two, you can become angry because of their parental rejection. You can become resentful because it makes you look like a failed parent before your congregation or friends. And I hope that, I already sense a tremendous spirit in this church, but I I trust that in this church, if someone has a kid that struggles, the rest of you just say, hey, we love you and praying for you. But I hope you also understand that biblically, God says that's that child's, that's not not the fault of the parents. You realize that even Kelly, who had terrible parenting, it was her choice whether she gets saved or not. And even if you look back and go, man, I made some terrible mistakes, it's still each child's choice whether they're going to do right or not. D, you can become disheartened because it's diminished your prestige at church. Or you can hold a grudge over your inability to sing the praises of your child the way other Christian parents do. You know, you, walk, you come into church and you look over at the car next to you and they got the bumper sticker that says, my child is an honor student at Montessori School of Excellence and Exceptional Leadership. And your bumper sticker says, my kid went to school. <laughs> and you're like, man, that's, that's kind of a bummer. <laughs> uh, I'm glad your, your kid was the exceptional student at, uh, in excellence and exceptional leadership, but that wasn't my kid. Don't hold a grudge over your inability to sing the praise of your child the way other Christian parents do. Number three, pray and hope. This is what you love about Ezekiel 18 if you go back there. And those of us who've had a child that struggled with the Lord, and what's interesting, at least in our case, our daughter still loves us. That's not, a, that's not an issue. And she married an unsaved guy that we love everything about him except he's not a believer. And we pray for him every night. And when it first happened, both my wife and I were so crushed. And uh, in fact, I offered my resignation at my church. Whole Church of First Generations, most amazing ministry I've ever seen. And thankfully, my deacons turned it down. And my deacons said, we're not going to accept this. And we had an old pastor that I'd taken over for up in Canada. And Joe and I visited him every year. And we went down. Our hearts are just broken. We sat down in the living room and told him everything we were going through, told him how we were feeling. And he looked at us and he said, Jim, what good does it do your church if you quit? He said, what good does it do your daughter if you quit? We couldn't think of a good answer to that. And then God brought us to Ezekiel 18. And as we work through Ezekiel 18, it's why I feel I still can be a pastor. I still can be the president of a Christian college. And it has humbled us. And it's given us a heart of compassion. We understand. We meet with people all the time who have adult kids who made a bad choice. I, out of four kids that I grew up with, my sister made a bad choice. I think there is a part where you understand in a way other people don't understand. But as you come back to Ezekiel 18, you pray and hope. Look at verses 21. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he's committed, keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall live. He shall not die. And I love verse 22. None of the transgressions which he committed shall be remembered against him, 
Because of the righteousness which he's done, he shall live. If you're here this morning, you're backslidden. You know why you should get right with God? Because if you get right with God, all your sins will be covered. They'll be remembered no more. Every single one of them. No matter how much you've messed up, no matter if you've been a bad husband, bad wife, you can start this weekend and say, I'm going to turn that around. I'll start making a right choice. And God says, that's great. Everything you did wrong, never talked about ever again. I used to think that when I got to heaven, there'd be like a big screen and everyone in heaven would see everything I've done my whole life. You know, that's not true. Why? Because every sin, you know, the only thing everyone in heaven's going to see? My works. That's crazy. The only thing in heaven they're going to see is the things I did for the Lord. I want that to be a long movie. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't want to be the intro. (laughs) Let's look at all Jim did for the Lord. Oop, we're done. (laughs) I don't want to stand before God and say, God, I love you, and have God look at me and go, really? Really, Jim, I find that so fascinating because you never read my Bible. You never served in church. You never loved other people. You love me. I'm so glad you're telling me that. I would have never guessed. Man, I want to get to heaven and God say, well done, good and faithful servant. And you know what? You're going to need some popcorn because this is going to be a two-hour movie when we look at all the good works you did. And you're going to be in heaven and go, God, when did I give a cup of water to someone? When did I visit someone in the house? As much as you did the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. In fact, let's have all of heaven watch that movie right now. That's the only thing that's going to play in heaven. Why? Because every one of our sins is buried in the depths of the sea if you're a believer this morning. Covered by the blood of Christ. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? Doesn't that make you want to serve Him? Doesn't that make you want to get right if you're a prodigal? But too many of us, we wait till we've run out of options. And too many marriages, when they, they come in to see me, it wasn't at the early stage of a marriage problem. It's at an end stage. Instead of the spouse says, I'm done. And all of a sudden, the husband goes, hey, let's go see the pastor. And those couples would come in and the wife would say, I told him five years ago to come see you. And he never came. Why does it take so much? There's a reason this guy studies the Bible. So he can help you on spiritual issues. I'm running out of time, but I'll just say this. If you have a plumbing issue, I was out in, in California. I have a rule. If Joan calls, I'll answer the phone. I pick up the phone. This is a conversation. Our house is flooding. If you're away from town and you hear that from your wife, you're just like, oh, no problem. I'm like, our house is flooding. What do you mean? She says, a pipe burst is just pouring out water. I said, Joan, you got to get to the basement. Got to shut the water off. I know all that part of our basement. My wife does, and I take care of that stuff. So she goes down there, and I said, it's in the... So she gets in the right room. I said, okay, go to the left. I'm in the left. It's right there. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Uh, and on, okay, fine. And, and on, uh, you know, stop yelling at me. I'm not yelling at you. <laughs> and you know the drill. And we finally, she finally finds it. She shuts the water off. I, my attitude when she said our house is flooding was not, honey, open the front door and let the water run out. I always wanted a water feature out front. You know what both of us knew? We both panicked. You know what both of us are saying? We got to get that water shut off. What's more important, your marriage or your plumbing? I'm just going to challenge you. Many Christian couples will fix a plumbing problem far faster than a marriage problem. And yet a marriage problem is much more important. And could I challenge you, when you're a little off and it's not getting fixed, get it, get work on it. And if you need help, come get help. But too many of us, we, we hang in there. 
That was bonus. That wasn't even my notes. Come back to our notes. We've got to quickly go. Pray and hope. God says if they repent, no transgression they've ever done will be remembered against them. If they repent, they'll be forgiven. Number four, do what you can to help them do right. But don't quit serving and doing right yourself. When you're discouraged, you're not going to feel like helping other people. When you're discouraged and you're grieving, you're just going to feel like, man, I need all the help. And you you say, I don't have anything. But you know what? You need to keep doing right. Even when you're down and when you're struggling, you keep serving, you keep doing right. Number five, your love for your adult child must never exceed your love for the Lord. A, you know this is true when disappointment has resigned itself to prayerlessness for the salvation of your child. Don't give up on your kids. No matter when they turn around. Did this, in the prodigal story in Luke, did that father ever stop looking for his son? The indication is he's looking for him all the time because he sees him a long way off. And yet, what's the last thing that kid said to dad? I wish you were dead. That's an incredible love. And man, the Heavenly Father just keeps looking. And as soon as you repent, He immediately forgives and restores. And if we're to be like Christ, that needs to be our attitude toward our kids as well. B, you know this is true when you point an accusing finger toward His bride, the church. This happens with parents who brought their kids to church, sent them to Sunday school, went to family camp, did everything that they knew to do right, put them in a Christian school, and then those kids go off the rails. And too many parents blame the school or blame the church. Instead of saying, no, that was our child's choice. And that's out of disappointment and discouragement, but don't blame the church. Is there every church that could do things better? Absolutely. By the way, guys, that's why you need to have good, healthy business meetings. Because the kids are watching. And when you rip on each other at church, do you think young people want to keep coming here when they're 18? You know what you want these kids? Man, Joan and I, we had a family camp just like this. Our kids loved it. Don't you love seeing all these kids run around that skit yesterday? Man, you love that. But you know what? You want these kids to grow up and say, I want to come back like John did today, like Willie did last night. I hope that encourages you as a church that there's people out there that said, hey, I want to come back to that. Instead of, man, I can't wait to never go to that again. That's again, bonus. But let me have the spirit in a congregation that says, man, our kids want to be here. Because we have such a love for each other. See, you know this is true when you compromise your convictions to appease your child. When you start saying, well, social drinking isn't that bad. Living with someone isn't that bad. Don't, don't change your convictions because your kids are struggling. You keep holding the line and say, hey, this is what the Bible says. We're just going to fill in the blanks because I'm out of time. Love all your children the same and keep loving. Don't be Jacob and Esau where they played favorites. For be an encourager to those around you, not a judge. Bear one another's burdens. Weep with those who weep. All that's found in Scripture. Don't be Job's friends. I've had people tell me when they see someone whose kids are struggling, people tell me they know why that person's kid is struggling and they'll tell me they were too busy or they were too type A or they didn't go to enough ball games. No, the Bible says that each child has a choice. And then lastly, keep communicating, but recognize it's all been said. If your kids grew up in church, you know what often happens when you first find out your kids are struggling? You want to preach another sermon. They've heard them all. My kids grew up in my home. They've heard all my sermons. And I just think that if I say it again and say it louder, they'll get it. That's not what they need. They need to be loved right then. 
Keep talking with your spouse. Have a few non-judgmental friends. <laughs> have some friends who get it and just say, man, I love you. We're praying for you. We care about you. And that, that means the world. And then as a great Canadian once said, keep your stick on the ice. We're all in this together. So let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the time we had in your word this morning. And God, I do pray for anyone in the room who has a child who's struggling. God, I pray we keep them in prayer. God, we're so encouraged by the passage. It tells us that if at any point they repent, they'll be forgiven. None of their transgressions will be remembered. God, for many who got saved later in life, we recognize what a blessing it is to have our sins forgiven. God, hopefully we all do this morning. May we never get used to it. May we never stop being in awe that every single sin has been forgiven. For those of us who've been backslidden, who knew what was right and chose to be like the prodigal son and walked away, and then when we came to the end of ourselves, we came back to you and you instantly forgave us. You instantly gave us grace. And God, help anyone who's struggling to obey you this morning recognize that there is grace. There's nothing that anyone in this room that's done so bad that they can't be forgiven, that they can't be restored. When Satan lies to them and tells them that what they've done is so terrible, they can never be used by you. God, may they remember the story of the prodigal son. May they remember these passages in Ezekiel that promise that we can be forgiven, that our sins can be put away in the depths of the sea to be remembered no more. God, we love you this morning. We're so thankful for saving us. Thank you for a time to get away with brothers and sisters in Christ. Spend time having fun, having fellowship, but also spending time in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.